continuing with our series on the Ten Commandments, looking again a little bit more deeply at the Fourth Commandment in particular this morning. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. If you're using the Bible under, under the seat in front of you, you'll find that uh, on the bottom of page 1037. While you're turning, last week we began to look at this commandment to cease for one day in seven from our works, our words, our worries about our work so that we might rest in the Lord. And much of the focus, rightly so, much of the focus when we talk about the fourth commandment typically centers on those things that we should not do on the Lord's day. Strategies to accomplish those prohibitions. And that's good and necessary. We need to talk about that. We need to be conscious of and intentional about our Sabbath rest. But I've said it before, if we try to replace something with nothing, we will fail. You can't replace something with nothing. So my hope this morning is that we will focus more on what we should be doing what we should be saying, what we should be thinking about as we consider how to cease from our own work. If our anxieties and tasks shouldn't be our focus, what should be? How should we approach the day the Lord has set aside for himself? As always, before we jump into the text, let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word this morning. If you're able, please stand while I pray. And remain standing as I read from Matthew chapter 12. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word because we need your truth. We have no hope of finding it apart from you. And yet, even if we were to stumble across your word without your spirit, we will simply twist it to mean what we want it to mean. So, Father, send us your spirit today to restrain our hearts. Make us see your truth. Make your truth sink down into our souls and fill us with your presence. Glorify yourself and yourself alone in the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from uh, Matthew 12, uh, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and yet remain guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And we'll end there. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. So I think most of you know I grew up in South Carolina. You can probably hear it in my voice. Anyway, uh, when I was young in South Carolina, we had uh, so-called blue laws. Maybe you remember some of those from here as well. Uh, In U.S. culture, particularly in the last 
100 or 150 years, whatever concept we may once have had about genuine Sabbath practices, and historians have been arguing about that and will continue to argue about what actually constituted American beliefs once upon a time, whatever the concept was, it was reduced in the 1900s, the 20th century, reduced to a set of legal codes that prohibited certain activities by law from taking place on Sundays. In my lifetime, I can remember most businesses were not allowed to open until at least 1 p.m. on Sundays. When they did open, there were certain activities that they couldn't do at all, like selling alcohol. You couldn't sell alcohol in any way, shape, or form on a Sunday. Rather than a true rest, Sundays had become as one author put it, a moralistic prescription for a day of quiet restraint and prohibition. Moralistic prescription. But the law, as the laws became dead letters, as they became less and less connected with what the people actually wanted, represented more a, the desires of a previous age than the current age, those laws got abolished. We no longer believed that it was in our best interest to stop our regular activities even for half a day. We understood the Sabbath not to be a rest, but to be an inconvenience, a privation, to be taking time away from what we needed to accomplish, to do the tasks that we had set for ourselves. Now, true rest seems to have been elusive for most Americans for a long time. Uh, in 2016, there was a new study that was published that found that Americans don't pay as much attention to the Sabbath as we used to, and the attention that we do pay is now very different in character than it once was. And I know that's on the level of water is wet, but here, uh, you know, here are some actual statistics from the study. Here are the key stats. 30% of Americans plan to go, plan to go shopping on their Sabbath, whichever day that is. This is a study not just of Christians, but everybody. 30% of Americans plan to go shopping on their Sabbath, up from 19% in 1978. Half of U.S. adults, 50%, say the Sabbath has personal spiritual meaning for them, down from 74% over that 40-year period. Religious activities like prayer, Bible reading, church attendance are less likely to be part of people's weekends today than they were in the past. In 2016, 27% of U.S. adults attended church on what would have been their Sabbath. 27% compared to 55% in 1978. That's, this is just my lifetime. Another study uh, approached the same topic, studied the same topic, but asked the questions a little bit differently, and that study found that only one in seven adults in the United States, 14%, set aside one day a week for rest, whether that's religious observance rest or just stopping doing things. One in seven, 14%, set aside one day a week for rest. And on that one day of the week, what did they do? Of that 14%, which isn't a whole lot, right? Of that 14% who set aside a full day for rest, only one in five of that smaller group say that they actually didn't do any work at all. 80% of those who set a day aside don't actually set a day aside, but use that day for work as well, even if not the whole day. As a society, we have never been good at resting or at Sabbathing, and it seems like we're getting a lot worse. 
In our passage this morning, we see something more of the depth, the breadth of the Sabbath as God had constituted it. And in that, we see His care for us. Something greater than the Sabbath is here. Or, excuse me, something greater than the temple is here in Christ Jesus Himself. The Pharisees had taken the fourth commandment, all the commandments really, but the fourth especially, especially related to the Sabbath, uh, because it was considered an identity marker for the people of God. It was so unusual in the ancient world to take a full day and not work. It was an identity marker, and so it was considered more important that the Jews actually pay attention to this. And so the Pharisees had done quite a bit of work to codify, to boil down what they considered the essential point of the fourth commandment and then build laws to maintain that essence. Imagine for a moment the Grand Canyon. I know maybe most, most of you have been there. I haven't, so I still have to imagine it. I hope to get there. Anyway, uh, to be a little absurd about it, the Grand Canyon is a giant hole in the ground. About a mile deep, right? If you fall in, you will die, period. So the park rangers put it, first put up a sign that says, don't go beyond this point or you will fall in and you will die. It will be bad for your health to fall into the Grand Canyon. Don't go there. But then a couple of years later, people are still falling in because, you know, you know us. We see a sign that says, don't do this. What do we do? We go do it. So people are still falling in. So then the park rangers put up a fence to physically bar the way from people getting to the edge. And it helped. People fell into the Grand Canyon a lot less often. But then after that, the park rangers say, you know what, let's make sure that people don't get too close to the edge. And so they put up another fence 20 yards further back. And now there are two fences to protect us from getting to the edge. And then later, another 20 20 yards beyond that. And again, and again, and again, more and more fences. Thousands of years of fences of just another, an extra 20 yards just to protect from getting too close to the, the, the pit. Until, pretty soon, there are miles of rows of fences and you can't see the canyon at all from the outermost fence. This was, in a sense, the Pharisaic approach to the law of God and to the Sabbath in particular. Crossing God's law is bad for your health and it is also not just for you, it's bad for the health of the entire people of God. If you break the law, there will be consequences for the whole people, so let's put up a fence to make sure that nobody even gets close to it. And we can guess that their intentions may even have been good. The Lord commanded us to cease from our labor on this day every week with serious consequences if we don't. Let's make sure we don't even get close. So they put up a fence around the law to help keep people or to help people keep it. But then a generation or two later, the leadership put up another fence because the original fence has now become part of the understanding of the law itself. So let's put up a fence so we don't even get close to what used to be a fence and is now understood to be the law. And again, and again, and again. Until all we're left with is regulation after regulation after regulation. Miles of rows of fences that people think are the commandment itself, but which were intended merely to protect people from getting too close to the commandment. This is our temptation with the law, and with the Sabbath especially, to fall into a list of prohibitions. You can pick up a book 
but not two books. If you pick up two books, you're doing work, and that's prohibited. You can walk less than one mile, but if you take one step beyond that less than one mile distance from your house, then you're traveling, and traveling is prohibited on the Sabbath. So you're breaking the Sabbath. Those are not random, by the way. Those are actual prohibitions that the Pharisees... The more stringent the prohibitions, the more stringent the prohibitions, the more closely you keep them, the more you will feel holy. Because after all, you're putting a lot of thought and a lot of energy into following these prohibitions. You're giving up a lot, but it's just so much striving after the wind. So my goal last week and this week was not to say this specific activity or practice or thing is off limits. And that one isn't, but rather to give you some deeper categories, some deeper understanding of the commandment and the purpose behind it so that you can evaluate your heart in the midst of looking at whatever activity you're talking about in any given decision. But as we get into the nuts and bolts, ultimately there are two approaches to understanding the Sabbath and thinking through what do we do on the Sabbath, rightly and wrongly. The first is going to feel like what I've just been telling you is the wrong approach. Start with prohibitions and build toward glorifying As we know, of course, the purpose, the chief end of our lives, the reason we exist, the glory of God and enjoying Him forever. The first approach to the Sabbath, again, feels very similar. Start with some prohibitions and build toward glorifying the Lord. And I'll, I'll explain that more in a minute. The second is to start with the end goal. Start with the glory of the Lord and our enjoyment and glorifying in Him, glorying in Him, and derive our activities and our prohibited activities based on that end goal. To put the same thing another way, we can start with the details and build toward the goal, or we can start with the goal and derive the details that we need to do to get there. At the end of the day, I think we actually need both approaches working together if we're to have a full-orbed understanding of the Lord's day. First, starting small where the rubber beats the road, prohibitions and plans. If we pursue prohibitions for their own sake, divorced from the condition of our hearts, then we are absolutely guaranteed to end with Pharisaism. That, in fact, is the definition of Pharisaism. It is guaranteed. Instead, we must recognize that our hearts want the wrong things. My desires, my will, my hopes, my joys and pleasures, all are ultimately derived from my sinful nature. I want the wrong things. All of that stuff is poisoned by sin, but simply rejecting whatever I want is just as bad as simply pursuing whatever I want. Both are defined by what I want. Both are completely shaped by my desires. Instead, we must, at the same time, mortify our desires and pursue what God says is best. Now, this may be moving indirectly, uh, this may be moving directly opposite to my desires. It may be moving directly in line with my desires. It may just be off at a tangent in a third direction entirely. But the goal is pursuing what Christ loves, what He says is best for us, orienting ourselves toward Him and His character. Pursuing, the, the point not is, is not simply don't do this action. 
don't do this activity, but rather it is pursue Christ-likeness. Being controlled by what He loves rather than by what, by what I love. And we're not going to do that if the Holy Spirit is not active in us. If He is not in us forming and shaping us, we will never pursue Christ-likeness. But in His grace, as the Spirit prompts us to pursue what Christ loves, He works greater grace in us that we begin actually to love what He loves. So we start by pursuing it because Jesus loves it, even though we hate it. But as we pursue it, we grow more and more to love what He actually loves until we're pursuing it and our desires have come in line with His desires. Calvin put it this way, We must rest from all activities of our own contriving so that, having God working in us, we may repose in Him or rest in Him. In another place, he says it this way, Believers ought to lay aside their own works to allow God to work in them. We need to be trained in holiness by the Holy Spirit working in us. And this requires us to rest from our toil, both toiling to survive in the world and also toiling after the Lord according to our own preferences and thoughts. We have to rest from what we think is right so that we can hear from the Lord. Now, what does that look like in actual practice? Now, let me be clear. What follows here is suggestions, not commands. These are some ideas for what laying aside your ideas about holiness, pursuing actual Christ-likeness might look like. They are not the only ways that it could look. They are not the guaranteed ways that it must look. These are suggestions. Please don't hear me laying an extra burden on you. Okay? Anytime you get to talking about the law, it can, you know, there's, there's that, that danger. Anyway, so some suggestions. First, if we are to keep the Sabbath holy or set apart, which is what holy meant, we must prepare for it. Not simply show up, but be, being, be thinking about the Lord and His faithfulness about the rest that He provides. Be praying in thankfulness before Sunday starts. At least, at the very least, as you're moving through your Saturday evening routine, be mindful of your heart attitude and begin to prepare your heart to fellowship with the Lord and with those who are in His image and called by His name in the gathered worship of the people of God. 17th century pastor John, uh, Thomas Watson put it this way, uh, When Saturday evening approaches, sound a retreat. Call your minds off from the world and summon your thoughts together to think of the great work of the approaching day. Purge out all unclean affections which may distract you from the work of the Sabbath. Evening preparation will be like the tuning of an instrument, and it will dispose the heart better for glorying in the Lord on the Sabbath day. We have to prepare our hearts to worship the Lord. But second, we, we need to prepare our soul just as we would prepare our body. Just as you shower and put on clean clothes and like that, I, please, I hope you do. Um, in the same way, we need to dress our soul for fellowship with the Lord in His Word. And this is done, I think, through reading His Word, through meditation on His Word, and through prayer. As we said several weeks ago, you can't delight 
what you do not know. You cannot delight in what you do not know. And the primary means of knowing the Lord is this, His revelation of Himself in His Word through His Son. Read it. Fill your mind with His Word every chance you get. Memorize it. I've actually recently started, this is not something that I've practiced a lot in the past, but I've just started memorizing some short passages of Scripture that are already sort of familiar, but getting them down word for word. And I have been surprised, I shouldn't be, but I have been surprised to see how encouraging it has been to have God's Word stored in my brain. To have it there, whether I'm driving in the car and, you know, you can't read while you're driving. Well, I can't anyway. Maybe somebody can. Um, But to be able to just call His Word to mind while I'm doing something else, while I'm going about my regular day, has been a huge encouragement. And then, soaking it into my brain, and then praying it back to Him, letting the words of Scripture guide your conversation with the Lord. Let God's Word give you words in prayer when you don't have words to pray. We've all been there where there's some thing going on in our lives or something that's laid on our hearts and we're just struck dumb. Have no way and no words to say. Use God's Word to pray. Hit His Word back to Him. He gives us the words to say. We have an entire book of what is basically prayers in the Psalms. We have numerous prayers throughout His Word. Pray His Word back to Him, letting the words of Scripture guide your conversation with the Lord. Which is to meditation. Don't read the Word and then set it aside mentally so you can focus on all the other things that you're doing until you pick it up again tomorrow morning, whatever. Dwell on it all through the day. Let God's Word fill your heart as water fills an ocean. Meditate on God's works of creation and providence, His majesty in making everything that is filled to the brim as it is with God's glory even after the curse has been laid on it. You look around at creation, you can see the glory of God dripping from everything. And this is after the curse that was laid on us has broken so much of it. How much more so was it glorious before the fall? How much more so will it be glorious when God makes all things right again? Dwell on God's steadfast love in sustaining all things moment by moment. His sacrificial redeeming love for the the people that He has called by His name in giving Himself to make us right with Himself. Let these truths fill your mind, fill your heart all day, every day. And as you pursue this, you will likely find that worship, the Sabbath day generally, become more and more a joy rather than a burden that we have to bear up under. Now, it should be obvious by now, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy is not about just one day. Calvin said, this is not confined to a single day, but extends excuse me, through the whole course of our life. Until completely dead to ourselves, we are filled with the life of God. This is our hope. 
that we would become more and more filled with the Spirit and remade in the image and likeness of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The Sabbath is designed to be a weekly reminder, forcing our hearts away from the foolish baubles and bangles that cannot even last within this own life, never mind have any internal value. Focusing our attention instead on what is real, on what is solid, on what is true, is what is beautiful, on what is wholesome. Paul put it this way in Philippians 4. You're familiar with the passage. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. And what could fulfill that list for us to think on, to dwell on, to meditate more than the Lord himself? Fill your heart and mind with Him. And this turns us to the end goal. The Sabbath is a foretaste, just the barest hint of a foretaste of our eternal rest with Christ. What we do every week is to be shaped like and to smell like the appetizers that are being prepared for the feast of the wedding supper of the Lamb. When we gather together, when we set the day aside from our works, words, and worries about our own stuff, we do so that that we may smell the meal cooking. Have you ever been seated at a restaurant from the kitchen that you're not overwhelmed by the noise of the kitchen, but close enough that you smell the meal being prepared? So that before the waiter even gets there with the menus, you're already, your mouth is watering and you're ready for the meal because it smells so good. You anticipate how wonderful this meal will be, whatever you end up choosing off the menu. That is the Sabbath day in this life. The inhaling the aroma of glory, breathing in delight in the Lord and anticipating the day when the full meal will be spread before us eternally, without end. When we will never again face the disappointment of food that doesn't taste as good as it smells. The disappointment of a meal ending. You have a wonderful meal, but you know eventually all things must come to an end, except that the wedding supper of the Lamb won't. It will be the best that we've ever encountered anywhere, ever, and it will never end. We look forward to the day when we will be resurrected, when our bodies and our souls will be reunited, and the Lord will return and make all things right, and we will dwell with Him forever. When the aroma of the meal will finally be transformed into the perfection of the spread in front of you when we will fully and finally set aside our striving after the wind, our worries, our anxieties, our fears, and we will simply delight in the one who has loved us perfectly for all eternity. The Sabbath rest in this life is to point forward to the fullness of the true Sabbath which we will enjoy eternally, further up and further in to the glory and enjoyment of Christ our Savior and Lord. That's the picture of the hope and the goal. 
Yet the truth is the Sabbath will never be perfected until the Lord returns. We live now in the time between times when the true Sabbath rest of the kingdom of God has broken into our world and into our lives, but it is not yet consummated. It is not yet complete or even close to it. So while we live here, we Sabbath in light of the glorious rest which, which, with which we have been promised, which has been secured for us by Christ Himself. And as we wait for the fullness of His promise to be brought into full reality, we actively pursue bringing it into reality in our lives. Bringing it into being in our lives as much as we can. Sabbath in this life anticipates and foreshadows the shalom, the whole life unity, the peace, the true rest and wholeness of God that is to come. We practice glorifying Christ now in every aspect of our lives, which is played out in the relationships that we have here and now. The old joke about life in this world is that there are two immutable truths. There is a God, you ain't Him. Glorifying God with all of life means approaching all of life in humility. It means knowing that I am not God. That it's not about me, it's about Christ. We don't, any of us, do this very well, and I'm be willing to put some money down that I'm doing it worse than most of you, if not all of you. But ideally, this means considering others better than ourselves. Considering their needs alongside, at least, if not ahead of our own. It means being willing to give up my preferences for the sake of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Or to put the same thing the other, another way, seeking the unity in the body of Christ. Not uniformity, but unity in the body of Christ. Through me, actively humbling myself. Through me, caring more about the image of God in you than I do about my own preferences. It means, as I learned yet again this week, it means that, when, that I recognize when I have failed at this, when I have sinned against a brother or sister in my actions or in my failure to act, in my words or in my failure to speak, or even in my thoughts. Recognizing when I have sinned. But not stopping at mere recognition, but actually going to the person and seeking shalom, seeking peace with them, asking for forgiveness without excuses, without justification, without, well, sure, I did this, but you did this first. That's not asking for forgiveness. That's justifying yourself. Asking for forgiveness without excuses and with full acknowledgement of the wrong. Y'all, this is no fun. We don't like doing it. I don't know, maybe you like it better than I do, but I don't like doing it. It is, in fact, humbling, we might even say humiliating, to admit failure and ask for forgiveness. We like to think that we get it right all the time. We like to pretend that we're doing a pretty good job. We're not. 
It is a humbling thing to admit failure and ask to be forgiven. It is something that can only be done as we hold the Lord and His promised righteousness and His complete peace close to our heart, in the center of our being. Because if I don't have that firm ground to stand on, then I will never admit that I was wrong. One author I read this week said that the Sabbath is the connective tissue between the first and second tables of the law, between the first three commandments that deal with our relationship to God and the last six commandments that deal with our relationship with each other, that the Sabbath is the connective tissue there that holds them together. The Sabbath is the result of the work of God in the first, that we worship in the first three commandments. And as we pursue the Sabbath with our whole hearts and not just pharisaical outward conformity to prohibitions, our changed lives, our changed hearts will be characterized by a love of neighbor that is defined by commandments 5 through 10. We don't get to decide what love of neighbor looks like. God's already told us. The more we dwell in anticipation of our full Sabbath, the more we dwell in the Sabbath here, the more we are enabled by the work of the Spirit to pursue genuine love of nature with our whole hearts as Christ loved His people. The Sabbath is where our hearts are made to be set on the glory of Christ. The Sabbath is where our hearts are filled with Him, where our eyes are pulled from staring intently at our own belly buttons and lifted up to the only real, solid, true person in all of existence. And as we are, as our eyes are lifted to Him, we are enabled by His indwelling Spirit more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness to love our neighbors as Christ has loved us, wholly unstintingly, wholly unselfishly. Of course, that's not going to be accomplished. We're not going to get there in this life. But more and more, as we focus on Christ and fill ourselves with Him and His love toward us, more and more we'll be enabled to pursue that, to long for it, to desire it, and actually to do it, at least in some small measure. course we're not going to get there in this life but c.s lewis said once in response to the aphorism you may have heard this he's so heavenly minded he's no earthly good got his head in the clouds in response to that saying c.s lewis said instead if you read history you will find that the christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next world. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and trust Him to give you a foretaste of, the glor- of His glory and fill you with His own glory through the Sabbath day, which He made for you. That He would change your life to be more and more perfectly reflecting his own image that you and i would look more and more like christ as we rest in him amen
and amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are really bad at this. We are easily distracted. We are so focused on our own ways of doing things and our own picture of what it's supposed to look like. We are bad at this. But Lord Jesus, we want to be better at it. We want to rest. We want to rest in you and glorify you. We want to smell the aroma of the meal so that when we get to it and and we taste of it, it will be familiar and glorious. Fill us with yourself and change us that we might be peace-seeking, shalom-seeking in every aspect of our lives. Glorify yourself in us as we delight in you, as we glory in you, let us glorify you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.